Hello, and welcome to Sounding Out with Izzy, the podcast where we have conversations with musicians, music producers, publicists, live promoters, zine makers, journalists, and more about their experiences working in the music industry as women, non-binary, and queer femme people. I'm your host, Isabel Corp the founder of the Queer Femme music-based blog and YouTube channel, A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Today is a very special episode because today we are conducting a thorough deep dive on 90s singer-songwriter, piano virtuoso, and alternative rock icon Tori Amos. What makes Tori Amos such an interesting figure is the fact that her music is equally beloved and maligned. Critics have often panned her breathy soprano voice as shrill and dismissed the content of her work as self-indulgent or dense. Anything not to listen to what a woman is saying, especially if she's tackling exploitation and sexism as head-on as Tori was and still is today. And that's also precisely what makes her such a great artist. Great art is meant to evoke a visceral reaction within the listener or consumer, good or bad. And another incredibly important part of Tori's legacy is her devoted fan base. A fan base so devoted that I would put it on the same plane as the Swifties or the K-pop stands. Joining me for today's episode is my resident Tori expert, Ella Abelman, who will serve as my guide to all Tori-related trivia, specifically how she cobbled together her monumental third album, Boys for Pele. And I'm so excited for you, the listener, to take this journey through the highs and lows of Tori's legacy along with me. As usual, I would like to remind listeners that I am paying for the podcast out of pocket, so if you would like to help me continue to create more episodes and maybe buy me a coffee as well, please consider donating to or checking out my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Those who join my Patreon will get to unlock bonus content, including music-based film reviews with special guests, unheard and unedited conversations in podcast episodes, playlists curated by yours truly, as well as early access to some of my YouTube content. However, I understand that finances are tight for many people, so if you are unable to join the Patreon, I fully understand. All I ask is that you give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as that really helps me out in my effort to get the podcast in front of more people. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Sounding Out with Izzy. Today, I am so excited because we're going to be talking about something that I am a little unfamiliar with, but super stoked on. We're going to be talking all about Tori Amos today. And today I am joined by my lovely guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Ella. I'm a very big Tori Amos fan, and I'm really excited to dig into her work. 
So today you presented the idea that we specifically focus a little bit on Boys for Pele, which was her highest charting album, if I'm not mistaken, and conceived all on her own, which is obviously not all on her own. She hired like a million collaborators, but like the vision was pretty much her alone, which is so impressive. So Ella, what can you tell us about Tori and her backstory, which is a very interesting story for the for those not in the know? Yeah, so she has a really interesting backstory because she was a piano prodigy from an extremely young age. I think that she remains the youngest student ever admitted to the Peabody Conservatory of Music. So she had really a gift, a talent from an extremely young age. And she was actually kicked out of the Peabody Conservatory quite famously. I think she might have been 12, but I'm not exactly sure her exact age when she was kicked out for, quote, musical insubordination, pretty much. She didn't like to read sheet music and she was more interested in rock music than she was in the classical music that she was learning at the school. So after that, she wasn't enrolled in school anymore, but her father wanted her to continue to be able to use her gift. So she actually began to play at different piano bars, most prominently gay bars, I believe in the Washington DC area. But if there are any other Tory fans, <laughs> I apologize if that's wrong. But so that was really formative in her experience. And you can definitely see those influences in her music from pop music to rock to classical music because she was playing all those different kinds of music from a young age. And then she was striving for success in the music industry. And so she released an album quite famously called Why Can't Tori Read in the 1980s. Why Can't Tori Read being a joke about the fact that she didn't enjoy reading sheet music. And this album was really a flop. It wasn't particularly successful. It was definitely yeah. her. It was a hair metal album, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. The album cover, if anyone has not seen it, I definitely recommend looking it up online. The photo is her with her hair, very much 1980 style. And she's holding a sword. It's definitely not the Tori, if you know Tori from Little Earthquakes or her later albums, it's definitely very, very different. She was definitely trying to cater to what she thought the music industry wanted more than what she felt herself, what she really wanted to be singing about. Although having listened to it, because you can listen to it on Spotify, I don't think it's that bad. I definitely think that she was more embarrassed by it than she should have been. I actually really like the song Cool in Your Island. I think it's really beautiful. The vocals are really good. So it's not so much Tori's shameful past as she makes it out to be. But she was particularly offended by one comment that called her a bimbo. I think it was Billboard that called her a bimbo. That really upset her. And so after that, she retreated a bit from music. And this was a really difficult time for her because she had had all this talent and skill and all this promise from a young age and she felt like it wasn't going anywhere and so after that she decided that she was going to listen to her own voice instead of what she thought the industry wanted 
And that's when she began to write the songs for Little Earthquakes. And then eventually Little Earthquakes was released and it was extremely successful. I think this was a really beautiful moment for her because she realized that what was going to be successful all along was her being true to her vision. And Little Earthquakes is her diary of sorts. It's really exploring in detail her personal experiences. They're really beautiful songs. Some of the most enduring songs in her catalog, like Winter, Silent All These Years, Crucify, really important songs in her discography. Absolutely. And I think like when Little Earthquakes came out, it was almost a bit of a shock to the system in a way. So if you would like to educate me and listeners, how did public respond to it? Yeah, so I think that for the most part, it was a really successful album. It charted relatively highly and she would do live performances. She's an extremely good live performer. That's one of the things that she's the most famous for, which might be something that we touch on a bit in terms of the tour in support for in support for Pele, because I think that's such a fascinating tour on many different levels. And she was sort of labeled a bit as a kind of quirky American artist. I actually believe that her, the record label thought that Little Earthquakes would not be properly understood in America. So they actually sent her to England. And I, I believe it was first released there because Brit- the British knew about Kate Bush and they thought that they would be a bit more receptive to this more interesting female musician so that does say something interesting about kind of, they were a bit scared about releasing this artist into the wild, you could say. But for the most part, it was successful. I don't know the exact, exactly how highly it charted. I know that Cornflake Girl was her first really big hit off Under the Pink. And I believe A Sort of Fairy Tale off Scarlet's Walk is her highest, the highest that a song ever charted on the Billboard track but it definitely gave her momentum in terms of making sure that people were going to be interested in her next releases like under the pink and especially in preparation for Pele she had definitely developed a following from little earthquakes and under the pink to allow people to be a bit more receptive to this more interesting work on many different levels for sure and when she did release under the pink and ended up following that up with Pele in 1996. What exactly happened to make such a stark like departure from what she was doing at the time and up to what Pele ended up sounding like? Yeah. So on a most basic level, she had more resources to be able to expand her sound. You definitely hear that in terms of the use of a full band, gospel choir, this kind of thing. But in her personal life, she had recently separated from her boyfriend at the time, Eric Ross. This was somebody who she considered to be her soulmate. It was extremely difficult for her. So Boys for Pele can be understood as a breakup album, 
it does have really beautiful breakup ballads like Hey Jupiter and Putting the Damage On. But I think that this breakup was really a catalyst for her to question larger ideas. So I see it as a breakup album in a less conventional sense in terms of her breaking up with the patriarchy. There's a really good quote that she has that I'll share because I think it explains this. And she said, quote, I hit rock bottom when I was out on the tour for Under the Pink. I separated from a soulmate. And for the first time, I started to look at my beliefs about men, women, equality, honor, disrespect, passion, sensuality, all these things. As I wrote the songs for Boys for Pele, I started valuing myself through my own eyes instead of valuing myself through the eyes of others like the press or a lover or whatever. So I think that explains really well the significance of this album. I really see it as an album about a woman really fighting for her freedom and embodied womanhood and achieving it. I think that it's extremely powerful that it was also the first time that she had full creative control because it was the first time that she produced her own album. She hadn't been able to do that before. I think it's really beautiful that the freedom, the elements of freedom function on multiple levels in this album. I think you can compare it in some ways to Kate Bush, actually, even though I do see them as very different artists, because the first time that Kate Bush produced her own album was for The Dreaming, and both of these albums are doing more interesting things sonically than their previous works had done, and pushing they push themselves to new creative heights, and The Dreaming is also exploring a woman's fight for freedom different ways than Tori is. I think that Kate Bush is more interested in physical metamorphosis, like on songs like Get Out of My House and she transforms into a mule. Kate is more of a performance artist than Tori, but Tori is still interested in storytelling. You can hear that on songs like Little Amsterdam, among other songs on the album. And to achieve this goal of really investigating men, women, sensuality, passion, etc. She explored myth, religion, history, different subjects. So it's really an album that is rich with a lot of left field symbolism. I think some examples that you can hear throughout the album include on Caudalite Sneeze, she chants to Inanna, who's the ancient Sumerian goddess of Love, Fertility, and War on Tulula. She sings about the henchmen who severed Ambo Lin. I really like the lyrics where she said, he did it right quickly, a merciful man. She said one plus one is two, but Henry said it was three. <laughs> I think are really brilliant. And then Muhammad, my friend, she is exploring the idea about what if Jesus were a woman and how would we see the Christian story differently if Jesus were being crucified but it wasn't a man so yeah overall it's very beautiful in that way because not only is she singing about her personal experiences but really singing about the history of of women women's history in general in many different angles absolutely that's definitely something I noticed upon uh the multiple listens that I did of the album and when I was really forced to pay attention, especially to what she was singing about. And so, and all of the layers that so many people who tend to dismiss her work as like self-indulgent or not, or senseless, just 
seem to really miss because they're not really paying attention. It comes as this is too much. I don't understand this. So I don't like it. And we're, trust me, and we're going to get into like all the many layers of reasons why people sort of like tended to turn away or like resisted her work. But what I thought was really cool that you wrote in, for those who don't know, Ella has an excellent Substack about slash blog, a newsletter about art history. And one of the things they, I think I'm paraphrasing this heavily, but you wrote a wonderful essay on Boys for Pele on your Substack. And something you said was amounted to, she's not just breaking up with a partner, she's breaking up with the patriarchy in a way and finally seems to value herself through her own eyes. And what a way to claim victory too, just to prove like that you are, that she was capable of conducting all of this on her own and she didn't need her toxic ex in the picture. And, and, and guess what? Also, this is my highest charting album. So a bye. (laughs) I, I just love that. And another interesting thing is the really sort of left field instrumentation that is utilized on this album. It's very classical, but the harpsichord is utilized as if it were like, I don't know, a Casio keyboard or a, like a guitar with a million like it, it sounds like it's being run through a million things like marshals and effects pedals and so do you want to talk a little about and you can sort of weave your personal history into this too if you'd like about how the harpsichord the significance of the harpsichord throughout history and how revolutionary it was to hear it on this album in particular yeah, on a personal level, I really love harpsichords. Actually, my love of the harpsichord was how I discovered this album. So I feel really grateful about that because I was really in love with pretty much harpsichord music when I was in high school. And then through that, that's how I discovered this more pop album that used the harpsichord. But the harpsichord itself is a really fascinating instrument. It's the predecessor to the piano. You can think about it a bit like the grandmother of the piano. It is different in pretty fundamental ways because the strings of the harpsichord are plucked while those of a piano are struck. It definitely is seen as more of a delicate instrument. It's more quiet than the piano. I believe Bach composed a lot of his songs for harpsichord. So it definitely has an extremely traditional history. It's not an instrument that you hear a lot on the radio or things like that. It's definitely associated with aristocratic history, things like that. Definitely not at all rock history, but I think that it reflects Tori's classical training and the way that she's using it is extremely unconventional. I think you can see this, especially when you watch live performances of her playing on the harpsichord. She's really banging those keys and essentially using it as a rock instrument, which is highly unconventional and very creative. And the reason why she decided to use the harpsichord was 
because she knew that she was going to be exploring this idea of bloodlines, like I was saying, ideas about women's history. So she knew that if she was going to be going to the past, that her piano had to go with her because she has such a personal and intimate connection to her piano. So that's why she chose the harpsichord. And I think it contributes a lot to the album. It is a bit of a strange sound. I would imagine that for listeners at the time who had not been exposed to the instrument before, it was probably especially striking. It has a very metallic sound. I think that Amy Gentry, who wrote the 33 and a third book on Boys for Pele, she described it as, I believe, a piano with a head cold or something like that. So it's definitely not traditionally beautiful as a sound, but I do think that it really provides this gothic atmosphere that's very necessary for some of the songs. And she described the sound as Baroque gone askew, which I think is a really beautiful description for the effect that that the listener has or what the listener hears when they're listening to the to the songs that use the harpsichord not every single song on the album has the harpsichord but many do baroque gone askew i love that it's a very very good quote and i think even you can connect that i'd love to talk about the photography for the album but she's definitely taking traditional different traditional ideas or symbols or instruments and really pushing them in new directions, not using them in traditional ways. I think also, oh gosh, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> You're all good. So yeah, you mentioned uh, you'd like to talk about the photography for the album. So yeah, for those who aren't familiar, what is what do these co- album covers look like and what is the significance of them? Because they're definitely very, very cool. Yeah, so I think that the album cover is one of the first things that was extremely appealing to me about this album. And it remains, not only is it my favorite album, but it remains my favorite album cover. It's so, so striking. And the photographer is Cindy Palmano, who's someone that she worked with on Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink. So they had a really good relationship. There's a really cute interview where she calls Cindy Palmano her best friend. So they had a very good collaborative relationship and Steve Palmano is just extremely talented I mean the photography for Under the Pink I actually have under a photo of it on my wall right behind me is so gorgeous I love the cover to Little Earthquakes where she's in that box and she's emerging from it it just expresses the thesis of the album so well emerging from the boxes we put herself in or that society imposes on us and I think that little voice for Pele similarly you can really get a sense of the overall theme of the album through the cover. It is essentially Tori and she's sitting in a rocking chair and there's a dead chicken on her right and an alive snake on her left. And she's holding a gun in her hand and it's essentially a 18th century. I think it's a bit, it looks like to me like kind of like a revolutionary war gun and she said, I can quote her talking about, she said, quote, the al- the idea that there's a dead cock on my right and an alive snake on my left and the idea that death and life creation, what it's taking me to get here with men and I don't want to be angry anymore. I'm not pretending what it's taking me to get here, but no more resentment. So pretty much she's really reclaiming herself and asserting her strength as a person in the face of adversity and 
oppression. She has this really defiant look on her face. So overall, it just makes for a very arresting photograph. It's also in a kind of barn. I think that this was something that she talked about a lot because the album has Southern influences. It was also recorded in Louisiana as well as a church. I think it would be interesting as well to talk about how it was recorded in a church. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different, it's in essentially a barn and that reflects kind of the the importance of the South throughout the album, the influence of the South, because she called it the place of the hidden. And this was something that she was interested in, was unearthing the hidden or maybe parts of herself that we are feel shame about and, ex- and exposing those, bringing those into the light. I also really like to talk about the pig photo. So the pig photo, I really like the pig photo. I'm an art history major, so I've seen a lot of Madonna and Childs in my day, maybe too many. <laughs> and the pig photo is maybe my favorite Madonna and Child. I just think that it subverts that archetype so brilliantly. Essentially, if you haven't seen the photo before, it's Tori and she's in a barn. I believe there's hay around her. She's with the farm animals. And she is breastfeeding a pig, which was definitely not something that people were comfortable with when the photo was first unveiled to the public. I'll read a really good quote where she talks about that a bit. And essentially, it's flipping the archetypal, the archetypal image of the pure Virgin Mary on its head. Amos is nursing the hidden, shamed part inside each one of us and railing against the idea that women should be pure and sexless beings. The result is a skewed Madonna and child that mixes the sacred and the profane, as she said in 1994. Or I can't, it can't be 1994 because this album released in 1996. This is my mistake with the notes. Pretty much as Story said, there's a good quote from her where she says, quote, that was my act of defiance of asserting myself against the oppressive force of religion, which has always made women deny their sexuality. She has another quote where she says, quote, people didn't get that image because most people aren't raised as intensely Christian as I was. Those who were might have understood that this was a Madonna and child, the one that brought in the non-kosher, the unacceptable back to the fold. So I think that's one of the more important images in terms of the voice for Pele. Photography, there's a really good one too of her. She's standing in a gas station essentially and her piano is completely on fire, which is kind of funny because there's this really good quote from her around the time of Little Earthquakes where she says, if anyone destroyed a piano, I'd kill them. And then in the voice for Pele photography, she's standing in front of a piano that's completely engulfed in flames. But it's so good and it works so well for the ideas of fire and passion that she's exploring on the album. Yes, absolutely. And I would, I also have a really great quote from Sarah Boaka from an article called mother revolution representations of the maternal body in the work of Tori Amos. And she writes in popular music, The figure of the pregnant, maternal, or motherly body is marked as other, not desirable, and therefore not marketable. Amos had represented the maternal and lactating body in a way that challenged dominant tropes around sexuality, child-rearing, and body politics. In the artwork for Boys for Pele, she sits upright in a chair next to a window with her shirt opened and her two breasts particularly partially visible in the exact center of the photo. 
In her lap, held against her skin in a traditional breastfeeding posture, is a piglet. With only the natural daylight filtering in from the side window, the scene is rather dark and creates an air of interiority, which is reinforced by her gaze going out through the window as if lost in thought and ignoring the camera. Her sense of detachment renders the presence of the breastfeeding piglet more shocking since Amos does not seem to acknowledge the situation as in any way abnormal. Her lost gaze prevents the scene from being seen as provocative while a challenge to dominant norms remains central to existence. So I guess one last question I have about the photo for you is because you study art history. That's what you specialize in. What makes this photo so subversive in the context of art history? On so many levels. I mean, first of all, the Madonna child is such an important image within Christianity a very sacred image. Jesus is such an important figure within, within the Christian tradition and this idea of being a mother and nursing the son of God, this very important holy being. And so then instead to use this farm animal as a stand-in and to really be nursing the opposite of that is extremely subversive I think that it's really interesting what you were saying about the idea of the maternal body because her next album from the Choir Girl Hotel is specifically about her experiences with miscarriage. So this is definitely something that she explores throughout her catalog. And more recently, she's talked about menopause very openly in interviews. So she's definitely someone who is willing to discuss women's bodies in ways that most people are not or most pop musicians don't. Of course. I mean, much of pop music talks about women's bodies, but not necessarily in the way that Tori does with this discussing ideas that are taboo, really, like pregnancy, miscarriage, the maternal body, things like this. So women's sexuality. Absolutely. And to jump into church recordings, What I thought was so cool was it reminded me that just over these past few years, Sloppy Jane did a similar thing where her and her band traveled to caves all around America and recorded in the and recorded the album in the caves. So and I all I could think about was, wow, Tori's impact. So I guess what did recording sort of in a church entail? What was her, what led to her decision to do that? And what sort of came about as a result? I think that this flows really nicely from our discussion about the pig photo, really, because recording in a church really does mix the sacred and profane because of the nature of a lot of the things that she's singing about. First of all, churches have really good acoustics. You can hear this really well on Caudalite Sneeze the backing vocals where her voice soars really high. You could tell that they managed to get that sound because it was recorded in a church. Of course, she was raised in quite a religious household. So ideas about religion are just a consistent theme throughout her catalog. There's a really good, I should have sent this to you actually. There's a really good small little video that was made about the production of Voice for Pele where you can see her singing in the church. And she talks about how she knows that she can always, if she can't sing anywhere. She knows that she can always sing in a church. So that's interesting because she does have a bit of it. Well, I'd say a 
a, a complicated relationship to Christianity really, but it was definitely not necessarily easy to record in a church. I think there were some instances where they encountered some different problems. I think also that the church was still active. So I'm pretty sure that services and things like that were still happening. It wasn't completely shut down just for the recording process, but it's a church in Ireland. It's in County Wicklow. You can look it up online. It's still there. I think some people will even visit it because this is where Boys for Pele was recorded. But most of all, I think that it just reflects, like I was saying before, some of those ideas about the sacred and the profane. I just think it's really beautiful in a lot of ways that she was singing some of these songs in that setting. Absolutely. And when, and I think it also speaks to just what a creative powerhouse she is because at the time, who else would have come up with that idea to even do that? Like to take these like essentially like analog instruments or classical instruments from like the 1800s and stuff like that, like a harpsichord and be like, we're going to make a rock album with this. I think the path that she carved out feels like so overlooked in so many ways, not just for the subject matter of her songs and what she did by speaking so openly about such taboo subjects, but everything from the way she presented herself to the world and her output, she, the way she would perform. Even if you look at Taylor Swift's famous all too well performance at the Grammys, that is full on. She is full on cosplaying as Tori. There's no denying, like, I wonder how many Tori Amos videos did she study before that performance? Like, you can't convince me otherwise. And also a very interesting quote from her when she was asked, oh, does it ever bother you that people underwrite your legacy and your influence so much and overlook it? And her response was, I will leave you with this. All I can say is there are a whole lot more piano players in popular music than there used to be. And I think that really, that was really all she needed to say, honestly, (laughs) because like even just like something as simple as that and everything she did was just so, it was just so freaking cool. And what I love is that you linked all these amazing academicals and stuff like that where people are like, look at everything that this person did and how much of pop culture and music we wouldn't have without her. Why does nobody talk about that? And it's just, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's all very, very true. Actually, I believe that Taylor Swift did cover Sword of Fairy Tale on her Speak Now tour once. (laughs) So she definitely knows about Tori and even sang one of her songs. So it would make sense that she would be inspired by Tori in one of her performances. But I definitely think that the idea about the piano was pretty interesting because it's crazy to think about now, but when she was making Little Earthquakes, the record people were giving her an extremely hard time about her piano playing. 
pretty much before people were telling her this piano thing's never going to work. What are you doing? Because this was during grunge. People were not thinking about the piano really <laughs> in popular music as much. It was all about guitars. And I think even this is somewhat where some of the difficulties with her awkward place in music really can stem from because people could imagine a female singer songwriter in the style of Carol King that kind of style of piano playing and Tori is definitely inspired by those artists but she is sort of in between that and more of the rock artists so I would definitely say that quote that she has about more people playing piano makes a lot of sense because she was really told again and again and again at the time that this piano thing just wasn't going to work which it obviously worked out just fine for her with a lot of success but I didn't believe Cornflake Girl that song when it really became a hit I think a lot of the other songs on the radio were more like grunge songs so it was highly unconventional to be hearing a song like that I think that was part of what really appealed to some people about it was they had emotions too but maybe those emotions weren't really being expressed in the way that they wanted through the other music at the time. I think also to compare this a little bit to Kate Bush, Withering Heights, Kate Bush's first hit was released during the punk explosion. So that sounded super different on the radio than the other stuff that was being played. And that was part of what was appealing to people. It really sounded like a new creative vision. Absolutely. And I love what you said about her performance as well, that she's taking a male rock tradition like men swaying their hips on stage and feminizing it. And like when she sings songs like Crucify, she takes the notion of self-objectification or like the ingenue and really dissects it and analyzes it down to the nitty gritty in a way that um, makes people see the nuance in the phenomenon to a point where it's unavoidable. And I think she is such a great like provocateur in that way that she really forces people to confront head on things that they are uncomfortable with. And I think that might be another part of the reason why a lot of people, people claiming that they don't understand her. Oh, she sounds self-indulgent. She's, her voice is grating. She annoys me. I feel like that's all a way of deflecting and avoiding confronting all of those internal conflicts that Tori has forced them to unravel with her lyrics, with her performance style, and especially just with the unapologetic nature of how girly, like, her work is. Because let's be real, like, she really hooks her claws into that phenomenon and people get hear about the really gross, awful stuff. And I feel like even with the women who dismiss Tori, because we're so socially conditioned to view ourselves and our bodies as disgusting, shameful, and anything that reminds us of the pure, just femme aura 
can turn even some of those women off. And I think Evelyn McDonald in her like Rolling Stone review, I think it was in Rolling Stone of Pele, like is a good example of that. Cause she was like, Oh, this is like self-indulgent. I don't get it. But yeah, that was really disappointing to read <laughs> little sidebar. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's quite a famous <clears throat> article <laughs> that bad review of Pele really. I think sometimes that the people who I wrote this in my Substack article, but I think sometimes the people that wrote bad reviews for Pele, maybe they just were sick or something the day that their schools went over what a metaphor is because they don't really seem to understand that maybe sometimes things won't be expressed directly, but that doesn't maybe you need to dig a little to understand it, but it doesn't mean that it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> but I definitely think everything that you were saying is all extremely true. I definitely think in terms of the performance style, it's definitely something that's frustrated me a lot. You see this a lot, especially in contemporary articles. People were extremely patronizing about the way that she played the piano. It is very unconventional and very sexual. I mean, people would discuss it a lot by essentially saying, oh, there's Tori, you know, orgasming on stage pretty much. And no one ever says that about Mick Jagger. No one would ever write a review of a Rolling Stone show and say, oh, there's Mick Jagger doing his thing, like on the stage. People would never say that because it's, she's embodying her, herself in a way that is not typical necessarily. And also she said that it helped her sing better the way that she played, which I totally believe. But I do think that it is complicated by the fact that the songs that she's singing are, really difficult songs like you're listening crucify that's a very difficult song about her self-hatred and insecurity and these kinds of things so I think it's the combination of both the extreme vulnerability in her lyrics with this incredible strength that's extremely appealing to listeners she seems to acquire a lot of her strength through vulnerability her vulnerability really becomes her source of strength I think that that you can really see so much in her live performances. She's really a powerhouse on stage, a very captivating live performer. I think that the live from New York, which was a live, which was a recorded version of a show on the Pele tour, you can really see that. I think that she's really exercising her demons in a lot of ways throughout this show. She's very much using the songs as a way to process her life experiences to express different emotions and it's it's one of the reasons why she's known as being such a good live performer so you were bringing up also this idea about the excuses that people make about why they can't listen to Toria why they don't like her music and there was a really good quote that I found about I'm just going through the notes to find it it was actually in relation to Joanna Newsom there's a really beautiful blog that I recommend everyone check out called Blessing All the Birds it's a blog that explores Joanna Newsom's lyrics through a feminist lens I believe that they're classical scholars so they're definitely trained within really analyzing text so they're looking at it kind of a bit as academics really looking at Joanna Newsom's lyrics. It's a really wonderful blog. I highly recommend it. I love it and have learned so much through it. It's a wonderful resource. And they wrote one, I think even two articles about criticism and 
popular culture about Joanna Newsom's voice. She does have an unconventional voice. And they had a really good quote where they said, Newsom is a woman with a mastery of language so intimidating that most reviewers and journalists, even admirers, shy away from exploring her lyrics in any great detail. East is viewed as impenetrable and dense. There are two possible reasons behind this. One, that many would like to dismiss it as a sort of nonsensical profusion of words for the sake of words. And two, we are terrified of the potential ripe wisdom contained therein. Those who have spent the time parsing out meaning in this particular Newsom album have without fail found it a masterpiece. So like you were saying, essentially, if you don't want to listen to what a woman is saying, maybe it's just too threatening because she's talking so openly and honestly about really what it's, it's really like to be a woman. You can just call it confusing or self-indulgent, dense, anything to not listen to it. And they compared this, I believe, to the scene in the Odyssey when Odysseus and the members of his ship, I've not read this since high school, filled their ears with wax to not listen to the sirens who would have lulled them to death if they were able to get fully invested into their music. So I thought that was a really interesting comparison to Joan Newsom, who um, was not a contemporary of hers, but I would say is indebted in some ways to Tori because East is also a feminist manifesto of an album that is using historical instruments, really. Absolutely. And there's another product of Tori, without a doubt. I don't think we would have had Joanna Newsom's ascendance or seen her rise to the heights of success that she has without Tori, especially just like with the 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 voice aspect, the language, the classical instrument. Absolutely. And do you want to talk about, I guess, the comparisons to her peers? So there were people like Fiona Apple, PJ Harvey, I guess Kate Bush was before her, but I guess she's definitely been considered to be running in in the same circles as Kate Bush. Also, she seems to be like one of the only ones that people, like we were saying earlier, seem embarrassed to admit that they like Tori Amos, which nobody says that about PJ Harvey. Nobody says that about Fiona Apple. Nobody says that about even like, it's even people, there are people who are embarrassed to admit that they like Alanis Morissette, but even she seems to have have been given more cred in the rock canon than Tori. And I don't, do not understand that. So what do you think sets her apart from them so much? Or uh, another great example that you brought up was Courtney Love and her writing on Live Through This, because that also dealt with the disgust and like the ideas of womanhood that people were uncomfortable to talk about. But yeah, so what sets Tori apart so much, do you think? Yeah, I have my own kind of actually that theory about this. So I think that on a most fundamental level, an artist like PJ Harvey is more within a male musical tradition of rock and this kind of thing. Bjork is doing techno electronic music. So are you from that? That's going to give them a little bit more street cred because they're not, the piano is more of a, associated more, like I was saying with Carol King and more female musicians, female artists. So that's going to unfortunately be a bit less respected, but I think that I've thought about this question a lot about why is Tori respected less. And one 
idea that I came up with, I can't say that it's necessarily accurate, but I do think it's interesting, is that an artist like PJ Harvey or Kate Bush are performance artist performers. So Dar- Deb- Barbara, Deb, excuse me, sorry. There's a book called Adventures in Kate Bush and Theory. And the author of that book calls this the BFS or the Bushian feminine subject, pretty much. It's the multifaceted characters that Kate Bush will act as throughout her discography. So sometimes she'll be a bank robber or she'll be a fetus during a nuclear fallout or a book character. So you can definitely see her exploring different emotions. I'd see it a bit like a Kate Bush kind of takes common human emotions and puts them through a fun house mirror. And the result is that you see them in new and interesting ways. So she's not necessarily a confessional artist in the way that Tori is. Same with PJ Harvey. An example, like to bring you my love off that album, she's singing really passionately about desire and when you're listening to it, you almost get the sense of somebody being dragged through a desert or something, but it's so clearly performative. And when you see the makeup that you wear and the dresses, it's very much a character. So I think that this allows listeners to be able to displace Kate Bush of the Kate Bush of certain songs or the PG Harvey of certain songs from the musician as people themselves. So if you have any discomfort with what PG Harvey is thinking about she has a song about drowning her child on down by the water well you can just say well that's just a character I mean ideally <laughs> it wouldn't be ideal if PJ had drowned her child but pretty, pretty much but in, in any case she might be expressing rage but it's fictional she didn't she didn't it's not confessional so but pretty much there's no character that Tori plays there's no AFS emotion feminine subject on Pele. So if you're uncomfortable at all with what she's doing, especially as a live performer, you can't necessarily displace that. And so I think really at the end of the day, one of the reasons why she's respected less is because she makes people uncomfortable and she pushes people's buttons. So I think that, like you were saying about Courtney Love, I think it's something I thought about a lot is, well, I think there are some things that are comparable about the narrator of To Bring You My Love to the, to the, to Courtney Love and live through this. I mean, compare Come On Billy from PJ Harvey to I Think That I Would Die from Hole. They're similar in some ways, but Courtney Love is singing about herself more directly than PJ Harvey is. So I think that that's kind of threatening to people. And I don't say this with any saying that I think that seeing in a more confessional way is better or anything like that. I love PJ Harvey. I love Bjork. I love Kate Bush. I love all these artists. And I think that they're all individual, unique, creative forces that shouldn't be compared to one another. But I do think that it's just interesting to think about how one is real and the other is more of a performance. But at the same time, when Tori was asked about why she didn't take part in Little Affair, she said that it was because her performances were theater and she didn't want to impose that on the crowd at Lilith Fair so she definitely was making conscious choices it wasn't necessarily just this unburdening of the soul that didn't take any thought or creativity so I would say that at the same time she still saw her performances as cultivated and things like that so For sure. And 
I love what you said about the idea that there's nothing displacing her from the subject of the songs, essentially. She's singing about her life experiences and she's not necessarily playing a character. So it makes it unavoidable for listeners to, they're sort of forced to confront these subjects head on. And if people don't want to hear something, they're just going to dig their heels in further to justify their reasons for not understanding something rather than, oh, I don't understand this, but if other people like it, cool. It's, oh, I don't understand this because everything, because how is it that the world doesn't revolve around me and my experiences? How dare people input, like, you know, it's kind of, I think of it as kind of funny like that, which is, makes it kind of make a lot of sense that a lot of the people who dismiss her are men and some women who have some pick-me tendencies, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that Tori is not seen as a cool artist. There was a really good article from Bitch Media called In Defense of the Tori Amos Fan. I really like it. Some people didn't like it. It got some criticism than the Tori Amos fan community, which is something that people are extremely concerned about, you know, criticism from the Dorian community. But but I, I really liked it. I thought it was really beautifully written. And one of the things that the author was talking about was how Tori's not really considered cool. You know, if you say that you're a Tori fan, maybe it's something that people would say under hushed breath. And I think it's because if you think about the word cool itself, it really suggests a lack of passion. And that cannot be said of Tori at all in any capacity. There are, there are a lot of Tory references and TV and movie and stuff where people say things like, oh, that girl seems like someone who writes in her diary and cries to Tori Amos. Or around the time that The Beekeeper was released, I think that SNL did a little segment where they said, a new album from Tori Amos, perfect for people who buy journals and don't write in them and that kind of thing. So just sort of this sense of her fans being crying teenage girls I think also this idea about her fan base is really important because people are really judged by their fan base and Tori Amos has a fan base of predominantly women and gay men and those are people who whose interests are unfortunately (laughs) respected less in society so as a result Tori is too which I find totally ridiculous and really really sad but it does show the way that a musician's fan base is really the foundation in many regards for the way that they're assessed. So yeah, there's a quote that kind of broke the internet that she said to the Guardian somewhat recently where she said, straight men are tortured by my shows or something like that, which I think is kind of funny. I'm sure Latoria does have straight male fans, but people, a lot of people were really like, how dare she say something like that and this kind of thing. But I think it's kind of funny. Yeah. I really love that podcast that you recommended as well, where they dissect Cornflake Girl and what, and they referenced a really amazing quote from Spin Magazine, where they were essentially the reporter asked her if she was trying to make the men in the audience squirm. And her response was, 
you know, whatever hang up somebody has with what I'm do- with what I'm talking about, say I'm in a Danielle Steele mood or I'm being aggressive and catty, that might remind you of something a woman's done to you that's really pissing you off. So you're mad at me. That's fine. There has to be that moment where the audience says, fuck you, you cunt, or I've done something wrong. And oh my God, what a mic drop moment for like she's she truly is just like over it she does not give a flying fuck (laughs) anymore like oh I know what people say about me you think I don't hear you you think I don't know that you know what I find so aggravating too is that if anything those jokes and those snide remarks about her only prove her fan base right. Like we know that in society, that in society, we are the butt of the joke. And you know what? We know y'all have never taken our concerns or what we like or what we find interesting or what we have to say worthy of your attention. You know, like in society, marginalized people in general, we're all looked at as the joke. To a certain extent, there are some who have more privilege than others. So we find solace in artists who take or pop cultural figures where we feel like we aren't treated like the joke anymore. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely really true. And it is unfortunate some of the ways that she does get discussed in popular culture. It's just sad, really, but I think that at the end of the day, though, she does have a really dedicated fan base of people who really appreciate her music and are very invested in it. So I think that she's definitely made a very big impact on people's lives. So at the end of the day, you know, maybe a pitchfork bro isn't going to list her in a list. Recently, they did the top songs in the 90s or something, and they mentioned her, but they didn't list any of her songs or something. Just insane. But that's okay. Maybe she's unfortunately is not going to get the recognition from the tastemakers, from the people who are writing about culture, but it doesn't mean that she didn't have an impact. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have an impact still in people's lives. And she definitely does. It means a lot to a lot of different people. And this album is really beloved. So yes, exactly. And another great thing that Sadie Doyle, who wrote that Bitch Magazine article, said was that she had girls, she had gays, she had various gender nonconformists who were all being advised not to take their own feelings seriously to survive and stand up for themselves. So no wonder this stuff wasn't quote unquote cool, but it sold and continues to sell and As far as legacies go, that seems like one to envy. And at the end of the day, if some, like you said, if some critic or some pitchfork bro doesn't list her, like she doesn't need that. She's got more than enough going for her. And what is important at the end of the day is 
her art making an impact. You know, I interviewed a band recently and one of the things they said is that they've completely blocked out anything that's ever been written about them. And what's more important to them is the stuff that people have written to them about how they inspired like young kids to start a band or how they helped a young person navigate a really hard time. And I think that can also be applied to Tori in many ways. Definitely. And I think that that is all really, really true. I would say one thing that can frustrate me occasionally, sometimes when people do talk about her, they'll talk about her as almost this kind of therapist, as if that's her best role. There was a book that was written somewhere recently called, I think I'm going to look it up to make sure. I think it's called Sing Us a Song Piano Woman. Yes, Sing Us a Song Piano Woman, Female Fans and the music of Tori Amos. So I read this book and it was really good. They really talked about the way that Tori has, it was a sociological book, the way that she's been really important in people's lives. And it was all really moving. And I think all those things are true. But I do sometimes wish that there was a little bit more discussion about her as a musician, what she's doing musically, because she's doing such fascinating things from her use of the harpsichord. I don't know that much about music theory, so I can't speak on it in depth. But that's what I really like about the podcast Drive All Night, which is a Tori Innes podcast where they dissect her lyrics, is they'll bring in different producers and people who worked on the album so they can talk in more depth about what it actually looked like from a musical perspective. Because not only is she singing about these subjects, which is extremely powerful, but part of her appeal is also that she's an extremely talented musician from a musical perspective. Throughout her career, she's done electronic music, rock music. She's done so many different things. She's continually pushed herself in new directions in her live performances. She started with her just her and her piano, but then she expanded into a full band, even on Pele. Like you were saying, there's so many different collaborators and yeah, many different kinds of instruments. I think that Bjork, the new Bjork podcast, she's been talking a lot about how she really appreciates Kate Bush as a producer. And I think it it would be cool for people to talk a bit more about that in the context of Pele, because she really, it was a a ginormous project. It was the biggest project that she had done up to that point. And really, in some ways, maybe the biggest that she did in her entire career. And using an orchestra, these kinds of things are not small feats. So I think that on so many levels, she just really astounds me and is such a genius, really. Even there are some songs on Pele that were recorded completely in one take, Marianne and not the Red Baron. She just sat there, record, and then it was just done. It just flowed out of her, this creative, she's just a creative force. And I think that it's stories like that are so beautiful because it showed that she was really on creative fire in during Pele, I kind of see it in many ways as the height of her career, the her masterpiece. I, I love all her albums, of course, and they're all really special, but just the, just musically too. Yeah, absolutely. And Pele is a musician's musician album, for sure. It's got... There's so many elements, like there's harpsichord, clavichord, harmonium, gospel choirs, brass, like a a full-on orchestras in so many of the songs. There was, I think there was also like a, like flugelhorn used on that album. Like it was, there were so many, there was 
like talk about a genius. Like, can you, it's just, and it's really cool as well because she's got, you can tell she's got a really great ear for not just a, like keeping the listener on edge, but also centering them at the same time. And, but also you really have to like work to figure out everything that, or dissect everything that's going on sonically as well. Definitely. I agree with everything that you're saying. One thing that we didn't touch on, but I think is important is the title of the album. So pretty much Pele is not referencing the soccer player, (laughs) Pele is referencing the Hawaiian volcano goddess. Like I was saying, she's really influenced by mythology throughout this album. And Pele is prone to raging fits of fury and known to exact her vengeance by sacrificially tossing young boys into her volcanic flames. So pretty much she wanted to sacrifice the men in her life to the volcano goddess. But at the same time, the title contains a fascinating duality because not only is it boys for Pele in terms of sacrificing boys to Pele, but it's also boys in support of Pele. She wanted to imbue masculinity with spiritual femininity which I think is something that she's exploring throughout the album especially through biblical women through exploration of biblical women like Mary Magdalene is a figure that she discusses a lot throughout her discography and really reclaiming Mary Magdalene thinking about her in new ways and the theme of finding and seizing her inner fire really pervades the album the only direct reference to Pele is on Muhammad my friend where she says you've never seen fire until you've seen Pele low but nonetheless the idea of fire like I would say comes up in the photography and there are also certain aspects where it almost sounds like the instruments themselves are kind of on fire like you were saying before when she puts the harpsichord through a marshal it has this really distorted sound so there is this sense of well, there's a really good quote, actually, from Amy Gentry. I love Amy Gentry's book on Voice for Pele. I highly recommend it. We have 33 and a third series. I think it's so good. It's I've read a few of 33 and a thirds, and it's definitely my favorite, not just because I enjoy this album, but because it's just really good. So she wrote, I'm going to find the quote. The album sounded like a wasteland, too. A bull groaned in the background of professional widow, shades of tobacco road again, and other less identifiable sounds presented themselves throughout the album. On some tracks, the piano was so distorted that it sounded as if it really were being set on fire. And although it still appeared in every track, it had been demoted, replaced as the dominant instrument of the album by the harpsichord. Then she goes on to say the harpsichord is not capable of softness. The transitions were too abrupt. The stripped down songs too stripped down. Twinkle was a one finger lullaby beauty queen was a single note plucked over and over and the whole thing sounded as if submerged not in musical white space but in something like black space the more complicated songs blood roses and professional widow and in the springtime of his voodoo were exhausting the thread of their lyrics and multiple bridges and breakdowns and deliberately contorted vocals impossible to follow so i think that is a really nice description for sure absolutely And yeah, I love how also you mentioned that it sounds like the instruments are on fire almost because that's very much the case for sure. Was there anything, so what else is like really on your mind that you're itching to talk about? 
I'm not sure. Is there anything else that you think that we haven't talked about that would be important? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a really great few quotes that I noted down. Um, Most of what I pasted in the doc was like, oh, I love this really long-winded quote. And I agree with this long-winded quote. But yeah, all in all, I feel like she... There's no one else really like Tori. No one else like who... I don't think anyone else of that time has had this type of impact that's so visibly tangible on popular music, even if it's not noted by everybody. And Sadie Doyle, who wrote the Bitch article, also wrote a nice Tory piece in BuzzFeed about how Tory pretty much single-handedly revived a dramatic piano-infused rock and pop performance in a very large visible stage setting. And one of the, and I would like to read this quote here that starts with, quote, everywhere you look, people are stepping into the territory that Amos carved out. That flaming grand piano bit Gaga did at the AMAs a few years back, that's a Tory thing. And so was trapping the piano in a transparent box. Joanna Newsom records nine-minute freeform orchestral jams about convoluted personal mythology on an archaic classical instrument. Hey, I liked Yes Anastasia too. St. Vincent's coupling of intensely pretty vocals and lush orchestral landscapes with harsh guitar dissonance. See from the Choir Girl Hotel. The list goes on, and the influence isn't confined to ladies. Try to subtract Tori Amos from Antony and the Johnsons, for example, and you'll be surprised how much you lose. A couple of years ago, when asked point blank whether she thought she got too little credit for influencing the direction of music, Amos responded with good-natured resignation. All I know is that there are a lot more piano players than there were in 1992, the quote I referenced earlier, and I just absolutely love how gracefully she's transitioned from album cycle to album cycle, even if not all of her wild creative efforts and muses and visions have have necessarily landed all the time. You gotta commend her for just taking risks constantly. What sort of artists, like some of her peers, like Fiona Apple, like Fetch the Bolt Cutters was amazing. And PJ Harvey, like, I think, don't get me wrong. I love Polly Jean. I adore her. I worship the ground she walks on, but (laughs) I think the bar is so low for music critics to just froth at the mouth over anything she does. Like, oh, she's releasing the demos of all her albums. Genius. Like, what's what's so honestly, be honest, what's so risky and transgressive about that they're demos I love them I love them they sound great but if she's such a genius for doing that I yeah then I think we ought to be a little nicer (laughs) to like artists like Tori who aren't considered necessarily cool anyway yeah This overall has been very therapeutic for me because it also forced me to really reckon with my initial ambivalence towards Tori. Like I didn't, 
I wasn't like super into her and I wasn't not into her either. I was just sort of neutral in a way. Um, So I definitely wasn't like in the same camp as a bunch of people who were like, I don't understand this, but in doing prep for this episode, like I've really been forced to listen closely to everything that she does and the gumption that she has the fact and the fact that she is operating just in an environment where taking risks, even the ones who don't land and might flop, she does not care. She's just like standing in the face of a tsunami with her middle fingers in the air. And I, and I don't, like you said earlier, I I don't want to reduce her to just like facing adversity or anything like that. Cause at the end of the day, she is a really, really fucking skilled musician and and a musical genius and pioneer if there ever was one. So I just want to thank you for not only bringing the topic of getting to discuss such a trailblazer to the show, but also just, I guess it's also forced me to question, I guess, like feelings in my subconscious that I thought I might have fought off or overcome from my not like most girls days. So (laughs) I really appreciate (laughs) you coming on. Thank you, Ella. And is there anything you would like to plug like some of your writing or some of your anything else that you have going? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for that statement. That was really nice. I I appreciate it a lot. I love Tori. So anytime that I can talk about her, I'll pretty much take, there was one small thing. I'm sure that maybe you could edit this in earlier that I just wanted to mention because I totally forgot to, Yeah, which was that the song Caudalite Sneeze Atlantic Records made the song available for streaming on their website. And it was one of the earliest examples of a major label implementing such a feature. I think it might've even been the first. So just from that perspective, that was such an interesting and radical choice to really use the internet in that way as a marketing tool and to be able to share her music. I know that Amy Gentry talks about in her book, Radiohead gets a lot of credit for in Rainbows. I believe they put that on the internet. I don't know that much about that in particular, but they get lauded as these pioneers. But Tori back in the 90s, those were the really early days of the internet. And to make a song like Call Light Sneeze, this baroque pop song, one of the first songs available on streaming is really cool and reflects also she had a big following in cyberspace back in the day. They were bootleg web rings and it's pretty interesting I think someone even wrote a whole book about that Tori and the internet but yeah it's really great from that perspective as well just for the forward thinking nature of doing something like that because now all of us consume our music through streaming I first listened to this album on Spotify so (laughs) but otherwise I do have a sub stack which is called I don't have too much to rep, but it's called Stintless Stars, which is named after an Emily Dickinson poem, one of my favorite Emily Dickinson poems. And currently, I only have an article on Voice for Pele up, but please feel free to read it if you're curious to hear more about that. I think I sent you the link if you want to put it in the show notes. Yes, I will put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, thank you again so much for joining me. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Sounding Out with Izzy, and thank you, Ella, for being such an expert guide on all Tori Amos-related trivia. 
Remember to subscribe and sign up for the mailing list on my YouTube channel and written blog, both under the name A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested, consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode of Sounding Out with Izzy.